right, well, welcome back to our series, part six of a seven-part series. Today we are looking at another one of the letters that are found in the beginning of the book of Revelation. And we've kind of been on a journey over the last several weeks together. We started back with the letter to the church at Ephesus, remember that? Then we kind of moved on to the letter at Smyrna, and then we went up a little north to Pergamum. Uh, then we kind of hooked around the horseshoe, because this is the ancient Roman uh, mail route there. And so we went to Thyatira, Sardis, and uh, here we are today at Philadelphia. Every single week we're opening up this mailbox and we're looking through these letters and we're finding out what God said to the church back then, but also more importantly, what is God saying to our church today? If we were to get a letter about Millington Baptist Church, what would that letter say? So today we're going to look at the letter to the church at Philadelphia, right? One of my favorite cities, the home of hardcore, diehard sports fans, the setting for the movie Rocky, my favorite movie, and of course the home of many delicious cheese steaks, right? Is it Pat's or is it Gino's? How many say Pat's in the room? Gino's? Okay, it's a little bit of a Pat's kind of group today. Whiz or no whiz? You got to go with that whiz. That's what I'm saying, in my humble opinion. Of course, we're not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We are talking about the ancient city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey that, was, uh, that is now called Alice here. The city was not famous for their cheesesteaks. The city was famous for their grapes because they had a lot of vineyards. But the thing that you need to know about Philadelphia this morning is it was hard to be from Philadelphia because to be from Philadelphia was to be very familiar with uncertainty. First of all, back then they had financial uncertainty. Historically, we know during this time there was a financial downturn because the emperor passed a law that said 50% of their vineyards had to be pulled up and cut down. Why? Some people say perhaps it was to reduce the wine competition in Italy. Other people say the emperor needed crops to feed his large army. We don't know, but what we do know is as a result, those who lived in Philly and the economy here suffered because to live in Philadelphia was to be very familiar with uncertainty. Secondly, in Philadelphia, they had uncertainty in their agriculture and climate. The reason why grapes grew so well here was because of their rich volcanic soil. Right nearby was this volcano, and uh, from time to time, it would like to erupt and cause violent and devastating earthquakes. Uh, still happens today. Uh, here's a picture from 1999 of this city with, with, that got hit by a huge earthquake there, just devastating. Uh, back in the first century, when uh, John was writing the book of Revelation, this had happened as well. They had an earthquake in the year A.D. 17 that just wrecked them, and then again, uh, they got leveled in the year A.D. 60. They would go back, try to rebuild, and then there was these aftershocks for about 20 years, so even the stuff they would rebuild crumbled again, and so it was a frustrating experience because to live in Philadelphia was to be very familiar with uncertainty. If you look up the word uncertainty in the dictionary, here's the definition. Uncertainty is a state of being that is unstable, doubtful, and a realization that something is unknown. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really uncomfortable about uncertainty. How many of you are with me on that? I do not like uncertainty. I'm not a fan of uncertainty. I am a fan of certainty. I want to know. I want to manage and minimize risk. I want to be in control. I like to know for sure. I want to be able to predict with great accuracy and also uh, know what is going on and what's coming up. I like certainty. Can I get a good amen? amen. That's right. Makes me feel calm. Makes me feel cool. Makes me feel collected. But you and I both know that no matter how much we plan and no matter how much we save and no matter how often we behave responsibly, inevitably there are still some things in life that are uncertain, aren't there? 
Maybe you're here today and you're feeling the pinch of uncertainty. Maybe things in your job feel uncertain. Maybe things about your retirement feel uncertain. Maybe you feel uncertain about your health. Maybe you feel uncertain about your dating life if you're single. Maybe if you're a student, you feel uncertain about your college decision. Maybe if you're a parent, you feel uncertain about the decisions your kids are making. Life can be full of opportunities for uncertainty. Uh, this came to full force for a pastor in Dallas named Matt Chandler. Uh, Matt is one of the pastors I look up to, has a great ministry there in Dallas, faithful expositor of the word, uh, wife, a few children, everything's going well, and then all of a sudden, one Thanksgiving morning, he has a grand mal seizure and finds himself in the emergency room where they are operating on a malignant tumor. All of a sudden, the certainty became uncertainty. For some of you this morning, life is good, and we rejoice with you, but would you just listen to this message today because you might need it tomorrow? Uh, others of you, life is okay, it's hard, um, but it feels relatively certain. Uh, still listen to this message because tomorrow life might become uncertain. And then others of you, today, you're facing incredible certainty, uncertainty right now. Uh, maybe recently you, you're going through something that's brought you to this reality and you're face to face with this truth that life really is uncertain and maybe you're here this morning and you feel broken and you feel shattered and, and I know you're here too this morning and I want you to listen to this letter to the church at Philadelphia very closely because this is for you. I'm gonna do something a little different today. Uh, I'm not gonna put these words on the screen. I'm just gonna open up this letter to the church at Philadelphia and just read it to you as we start our time. Don't, don't, don't look it up. Just let these words fall on your ears as we begin. The letter starts like this. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for preserving these words 2,000 years so that we might benefit from them even this morning. We come to you with our text, and we ask for open minds and hearts and ears. Uh, the preacher brings his thoughts and insights today, but I kind of feel like the boy who brought fish and loaves this morning, and I wonder, what are these among so many? Uh, but we come with faith, and nothing is too difficult for you, and so, Lord, we ask that you would multiply our spiritual meal today. For the sake of Jesus Christ and his reputation, we pray. Amen. 
Take a look at again at the beginning of this letter. Uh, the first couple of verses are, are very interesting, and I, I want you to notice uh, a few things here right off the bat. Uh, two unique things about the letter to the church in Philadelphia are as follows. First, unlike many of the other churches, the church at Philadelphia receives no warnings, no rebukes, no corrections, no condemnation, no threats, nothing like that whatsoever. It only receives encouragement. It only receives promises. As I studied, I counted at least six promises in this letter. You count them as we go through. Secondly, I want you to notice that this introduction is a little different. Typically, uh, the, the letters in the beginning of Revelation start with the description of the author, the Lord Jesus, but this is the first time that the description of the Lord Jesus does not come directly from uh, chapter 1 and the vision that John saw. So this is, this is unique. Notice the threefold description there on the screen. It says, He is the one who is holy a word that describes the essence of the character of God as separate, as set apart. He is wholly other. Uh, this is the Lord Jesus who is, who is holy. He's, he's a cut above. We are not on his level. He is pure. He is spotless, without blemish. He is flawless in all of his ways. He is holy. And therefore, we read his words with reverence and, and respect, for our God is a holy God. You know, we live in a culture where uh, we will not often tolerate a God like this, a God who is holy, but yet this is who the Lord Jesus is. Secondly, I want you to notice that it says he is true. He does not bring one opinion among many. Uh, he brings the truth. He is the perfect standard of all that is true in his character and in all that he does and all that he says. Jesus brings objective, not subjective truth. He is the standard bearer. He is the plumb line. He's the one we align ourselves to. He's the one we use to calibrate all of our thoughts and thinking. He is true. Even if we don't understand, we say, let God be true and every man a liar. He is true. In a world of uncertainty, what we need is a relationship with one who is true. Thirdly, I want you to notice that it says he holds the key of David. The key of David. King David was the greatest Old Testament king. God had given David authority over the nation of Israel. Keys are symbols for authority. God had given David also a promise that one day a son of his would sit on his throne and reign forever. Jesus is that beloved promised son of David. This means Jesus has messianic authority. He has the keys. He has the keys of heaven. He has the keys of hell. He said in Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me. He has the key of David. Who is Jesus? He is the Holy One. He is true. He holds the keys. What does he do with those keys? Take a look at the next couple of verses. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What I want you to see here in verses 7 and 8 is this image of a door. Here's a picture of one of my daughters at the Noah's Ark exhibit in Kentucky standing before a big shut door on the ark, trying to pull as hard as she possibly could, but no matter how hard she tried, the door would not budge because the door was shut. How many of you can relate to this image? Before you today, you are facing a shut door. Maybe for some of you, it seems like the door at your job has been shut. Maybe for some of you, it seems like the door of your marriage has been shut. Maybe for some of you, it seems like the door of having children has been shut. The door of good health feels shut. The door of financial security feels shut. The door of getting promoted at my company feels shut. Does anybody here know what it feels like to stand before a door that is shut? I sure do. I remember when I was younger, I really had this dream and goal uh, to go to Princeton 
And so I, I thought I had the grades to get in there, and being from central New Jersey, I thought this is the perfect place for me to go. So I submitted my transcripts, I submitted my essays, I went for a visit, I did my interview, and I thought all of that went well, and then I just waited. And I waited, and I waited, until I got a very thin letter in the mail, a letter of rejection. For me, the door was slammed in my face. And that was hard, that was discouraging, and I know God had other good plans for me uh, in the meantime, but still, it's really tough to face a shut door. Here's the good news. Right here in this passage, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, the Holy One, the one who is true, the one who has the key of David, looks to us when we have a closed door and says to you and me this morning, I have a door for you, and it's open. It's an open door. Is it possible that even though some doors in your life feel like they have been shut, that Jesus Christ himself is opening other doors in your life also? Is there a relationship that could be an open door? Is there possibly an opportunity that's an open door for you? Where is God opening a door for you to be a witness to him even in times of uncertainty? That's the first thing you have to remember. When you are facing uncertainty, you need to look for the open door. Look for the open door. Can we say that together? Look for the open door. In this context, these words would be especially powerful. They had been facing a different kind of closed door. For them, their local Jewish synagogue door was closed literally in their faces. To explain that, take a look at the next section. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. The context here is that during this time, a lot of Jewish people had migrated to this area around the Aegean Sea. Pastor Bob mentioned last week that there are large ruins of very large Jewish synagogues from the first century around this area. But the problem is the synagogue leaders in Philadelphia, wrongly claiming to act for Israel's God, have marginalized the Jews who had become Christians. See, if you had left Judaism for Christianity, there was trouble for you. Now your faith was gonna cost you something. Now the door was shut in your face. Now you were considered a traitor. And so they had essentially excommunicated them. And here, they were saying they were the people of God. But Jesus says, that, actually, no, no, they're not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Revelation, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 2 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So I want you to picture the scene. If you were one of those Jewish converts who had recently become a Christian in the first century and you lived in the city of Philadelphia, maybe your earthly family has rejected you. You lost your synagogue family. The door was slammed in your face because of your new faith. And then the Lord Jesus sends you a letter and says, I have an open door for you. It's a door of welcome. It's a door of rescue. It's a door of salvation. It's a door of sonship. Jesus says, come on in, welcome home. I have opened a door for you. I just wonder what that meant for them. Jesus says, I know you've been rejected by them, but you're accepted here with me. And further, he says, I'm actually gonna give some of them to you as converts. They're gonna come to you with this sign of respect. You just wait. One day, some of them will come from that synagogue and they'll acknowledge that you, the Christians, we're right about who Jesus is and right about the fact that he loved you. And so in life, when we're filled with uh, uncertainty, 
On the one hand, we know that there are these closed doors, but on the other hand, we have to acknowledge that there are also open doors from the Lord Jesus himself. It reminds me of the story of Afshin Ziafat. Afshin Ziafat was born in Houston, Texas. At two years old, he moved to Iran, where his parents were from. At six years old, the Islamic Revolution hit that country, so they moved back to Houston. At six years old, he didn't speak English. He spoke Farsi. He had an English tutor teaching him English in the second grade who gave him an English New Testament. He read that same New Testament 10 years later. That's how he came to faith in Christ. Because of that, he decided to hide this news from his family. He didn't know what he would do. He thought, what am I going to tell my father? My father has always been the most important person in my family, the guy I've always looked up to. So Afshin hid it. He would sneak out to go to church and hide the mail that came to his house from their church until one day his dad found a Bible. He sat him down and said, what's going on, son? I see that you've been acting differently. Tell me what's happening. Afshin said, dad, I'm a Christian. His dad said, excuse me, son? No, you're not. You're a Muslim and you'll always be a Muslim. He said, Dad, the Bible says if I trust Jesus for my salvation, then I'm a Christian, and I do. Then his dad said, Son, if you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. He said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, I choose Jesus. He said, if I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. Then as Afshin spoke to us, he said, I went went up to my room in what was a defining moment in my life, and I cried out to the Lord to help me. And he literally let my eyes fall down on my Bible to these words in the book of Matthew from the Lord Jesus. He said he read this verse, I didn't come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father. He's reading that right after his dad disowns him. And he's like, man, this just happened to me. And he said, right there, that's when I realized the incredible cost of following this Jesus. Sometimes doors shut, and sometimes other doors open. Today, Afshin Ziafat is a pastor with a special ministry to Muslims to bring them to Christ. And then he trains them to learn to share their faith also in Muslim-dominated countries. It's really an amazing, fruitful ministry. Now, you might not be able to relate to that story exactly, But let me ask you, where are the doors that have been shut for you? And is it possible that God is opening other doors wide at the same time? In times of uncertainty, look for the open door. This was a difficult time for the Christians in Philadelphia. But Jesus commends them. Notice he says, they had endured patiently. See that? That's a very common word used in the New Testament. It's the Greek word hupomeno. It's a compound word. Uh, Hupo means under and meno means abide. Uh, If you look it up in the dictionary, it means this. I'll put it up on the screen. It means to endure, stand firm, and abide temporarily under difficulty. It's temporary. It's where you live for a season. It's like an apartment that you rent. It's not like a house that you buy. It's this temporary period of suffering. Friends, this is the most common command in the Bible given in contexts of suffering and uncertainty. Just listen with your ears to a few examples and see if you can hear this word. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who endures trials. James 5.11. We count those blessed who endured. Matthew 10.22. Those who endure to the end will be saved. 
1 Corinthians 4.12. When we are reviled, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure. Hebrews 11.25. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. 1 Peter 2.20. When you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Two more. Romans 5.3. We also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about endurance. And last, Revelation 1, 9. I, John, am your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Jesus, Paul, James, Peter, the writer to the Hebrews, are all on the same page. When we are facing uncertainty, God calls us to what? To endure. Now, I know this is not what you want to hear because this is not what I want to hear. We want our problems to go away. We don't want to hear someone say, hey, Brother Dave, regarding that difficulty you're going through, might last a while. Hang in there. Best advice. Stay tough, man. No. But dear friends, this is what the Bible teaches. Listen very carefully. The most common word in Scripture associated with uncertainty and difficulties is not prayer, faith, hope, encouragement, or comfort. Instead, the most common word associated with uncertainty and suffering in the New Testament over and over and over is this command to endure. So that brings us to point two. When you're facing uncertainty, look for the open door and find the strength to endure. Can we say that together? Look for the open door, find the strength to endure. That's what the Church of Philadelphia knew. See, they were suffering, but they were suffering well. There is a difference. Not everybody who suffers, suffers well. There is a way of suffering. We're in the middle of it. It's like that person's faith grows and flourishes, and there is another kind of suffering. We're right in the middle of it. That person's faith withers and dies. The difference is our response the chancellor at the seminary I attended was Chuck Swindoll, and he used to say it this way. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. He went on to say, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures and successes, than what other people think, say, or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. And so it is with you. You are in charge of your attitude. So the challenge for me here today is to have the right attitude. When I am facing uncertainty, I need to ask God for the strength through the power of the Holy Spirit to endure and patiently endure what he's calling me to go through and choose to trust him, choose to glorify him, and choose to be content in all circumstances. See, uncertainty can either be a greenhouse for my faith to grow or it can be a graveyard where my faith goes to die. I choose. 
That's why these Christians here in Philly are commended. Even in the midst of the uncertainty, they were enduring patiently, and then the Lord gives them this amazing promise. Look at verse 10. He says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, just to have a little bit of five minutes of theology for one second, for those of you who, who are interest, interested in this, Revelation 3.10 is a very important verse in the Bible when it comes to studying eschatology or the study of last things. And we have to take a moment here and just consider, what does this mean? Notice, it doesn't seem to be something that applies just to Philadelphia. The words seem more sweeping than that. The language seems to be grander than that. It's not localized. It says it will be an hour which comes upon all the inhabitants of the earth. The, the language is exhaustive. And, and, and also notice that it, it's future. I will keep something that hasn't happened yet. And so most scholars agree that what's being referred to here in this hour is, is something called the great tribulation that the scripture teaches. It's, it's a time of unparalleled suffering that will happen at the end of this age. There are several ways in which the Bible refers to this period. It's called the tribulation, the great tribulation. The day of God's wrath, a time of distress, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel. It's called over 75 times in the Bible, the day of the Lord, the day, that day, that great day. And so this is a time period where God's wrath will be poured out on earth, and put it frankly, it will be the worst hour on planet earth. It will be the worst hour on planet earth. But here the Lord Jesus says, I will keep you from that hour, right? So what exactly does he mean by that? The question we have to ask is, how do you translate that word from? Now, some people translate it from, and other people translate that word as through. And the word can actually go both ways. And so there's this debate. Do these words promise a preservation through the tribulation, or do they promise a removal from the tribulation? Is this a preservation through, or is this a removal from? And this is, of course, what we're talking about here is the doctrine of the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, The dead in Christ will be raised, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so people wonder, when will the rapture occur? Will, will it be, how in relationship to the tribulation will this all go down? Now, there's, there's lots of positions on this, but there are three basic positions that you should probably know about. Some people say it will happen before the tribulation. They call that the pre-tribulation position. Bear with me. Some people say it's in the middle of the tribulation. That's in the middle, mid-tribulation. And then other people say it's after. Of course, that's the post-tribulational position. There are some nuanced views in the middle, but those are the big three. Good, godly scholars disagree on this. For pre-tribulationalists like myself, there's this grammatical argument here that's made that says the more common reading, the more natural reading of that word from or ek is uh, more commonly defined as from. And notice it says he will keep us from not just the testing, but the hour of the testing. And so Dr. Charles Ryrie at DTS would lecture on this verse, and he used to say, sometimes I exempt my A students from the final exam, and he would say this, I've been a teacher most of my life, and if I were to tell my students I'll keep you from the hour of the exam, I don't think one of them would expect to be taking that test. And so that view seems to make sense to me. I lean towards that view. Um, but to be honest, in the original language, you could really go both ways. If you want to read the case for the post-tribulational view, a recent book came out by Michael Brown and Craig Keener called Not Afraid of the Antichrist, and they kind of go through that view here. I don't want to be dogmatic about this. Good Christians disagree, but here's what we can all agree on. Ready? Number one, as Christians, we are not promised exemption from suffering 
and persecution in this life. We are not given that promise in the scriptures. You will not find that. Number two, what we can all look forward to is that Jesus Christ is certainly returning again. This is what he says next, verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I'm coming soon. Maranatha, Christ is coming again. He will return. It's an amazing hope, an amazing promise that we have. I don't know how people go through what they go through without the promises of Christ, to be frank. Isn't it incredibly comforting that whether in life or in death, we will all be changed. We will meet the Lord in the air. We will be reunited with others who have died in Christ, and we will all receive new bodies and a crown upon our heads. All those things will happen. All, the, all of them will be wonderful, but, but the one thing that outshines them all is we will see him face to face. 1 Corinthians 13, now I see as in a mirror dimly, but then I will see face to face. One day, all that we know now will be like a pale image compared to the glorious reality that we will know about on that day. And so to some extent, the second coming is beyond anything we could ever even imagine. All we know is we will see him as he is. And so the letter here says, hold on to that promise. It's such a rich treasure. Do you realize what a rich treasure you have? 1 Corinthians 2 says, I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Hold on to the promises of God. Then he says this in verse 12. The one who is victorious... I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. No more exile, no more diaspora. This is a permanent situation. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. What does it mean to have these names written upon us? To have a name written on something in those days meant ownership. Even today, if our kids take lunch or, you know, something to school, we put their name on it, put their name on the back of their shirt, that kind of thing, so that if they lose it, they know who it belongs to. What it means here is that God has marked us with his very name. We belong to him. He tells us in Exodus 19, we are his treasured possession. His name is written on you, and you belong in his city. See, to be from Philadelphia was to be very familiar with uncertainty, and so they had to remember they had this dual citizenship, they belong to the city of God. You know, it's interesting in terms of cultural background, as I was studying for this, this message, I learned that the city of Philadelphia had been renamed three times in the first century. It was originally called Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, because it was founded by King Attalus and his brother Eumenes, and they were very close, so they named it Philadelphia, the, the city of brotherly love. Then they had that earthquake and they needed some money, and the emperor sent them some cash down to Philadelphia so that they could rebuild, and then just to kind of kiss up to him, they renamed the city Neo-Caesarea, kind of, you know, getting in good with the, the, the local politicians. Then when he died, they named it back Philadelphia again. <laughs> Later on, when Vespasian was the emperor, they named it Flavia after his wife, kind of kissing up to this particular leader, and then when he died, they named it Philadelphia again. So what's the name of your town again? It's uncertain. I think it's Philadelphia. But they kept being pulled back to their original name. And isn't that the case when, when uncertainties of life come? Doesn't that also pull you back to who you really are? If you know Christ, you know exactly where you belong. If you know Christ, you know exactly what city you call your home. 
If you know Christ, you know exactly who has marked you as his very own. See, in the middle of uncertainty, we have to lift our eyes above the horizon to that new city, the city of Jerusalem, the city above where our true and certain and everlasting home is. Notice also in this verse this image of being a pillar. Now, in those days, pillars communicated to them something that doesn't necessarily communicate to us. Pillars were iconic in those days. When you thought of your city, you would think of the pillars that were in your town. Uh, Here's the ruins of the pillars in the city of Philadelphia from the first century. Here's the thing about pillars. Pillars were designed architecturally to be basically shockproof. That's why if an earthquake were to occur in your city, sometimes the only thing left standing were the pillars. They were built to last. Here's the good news of this passage. Jesus says, I know you feel uncertain. I know sometimes you feel insecure, but not when I'm with you. I am making you into something that is very secure. I am making you shockproof. I am making you absolutely unshakable. I, I make you firm through whatever trial you go through. I will ground you in me, and when you have me in you, you will not be shaken. What a contrast with the uncertainties of this life. And so that's our third point today. In the middle of uncertainty, we have to do these three things. We have to look for the open door. We have to find the strength to endure. And Christ will make you secure. Look for the open door. Find the strength to endure. And Christ will make you secure. Let me give you an example of what it means to be a pillar in the house of God. Back with that story I began earlier with Matt Chandler, pastor in Texas. Tragically, had a seizure, emergency brain surgery, found the malignant tumor, got most of it out. He still lives with a great deal of uncertainty, as does his wife, as does do his children. But his testimony in Christ, since that has happened, has been so meaningful and inspiring to me personally. Right after this, He got up and stood in the pulpit again, and he preached from Philippians chapter 1, where Paul says, no matter what, I know now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he told his congregation about the very real possibility in this life of suffering. And here's exactly what he said, and I will never forget these words. He said this, I want you to look right up here at me. Following Jesus is not going to guarantee and make you healthy. Following Jesus is not going to guarantee that you're going to be healthy. The message of Scripture and the gospel of Christ is not that in following him everything goes right, but that he is enough no matter what happens. Jesus is enough. He's preeminent, top of the chain. There's nothing more to gain. There's nothing else to pursue. There's nothing above him. There's nothing beyond him. There's nothing that even compares to him. There's no one even like him. There's nothing you could ever have that compares with a relationship with Christ. So you may lose other things, but you will never lose him. Though you may pursue healing, maybe you get it, maybe you don't, but you pray with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I believe God can and I'm praying that he will, but even if he doesn't, I'm still gonna bow and worship the name of Jesus Christ, my savior, my all in all. He is enough. He is sufficient. 
That's the gospel. The gospel is about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all circumstances. This is the message that we have. Christ is sufficient. No matter what circumstances I face, no matter what uncertainties come my way, I say, yet I will praise the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. He is enough. He's not just enough. He is more than enough. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. In every high and stormy gale, the anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When life hits you with uncertainty, look for the open door. Find the strength to endure, and Christ will make you secure. Can we say that together? Look for the open door. Find the strength to endure, and Christ will make you secure. Let me invite the worship team to come for one more song. And as they do, I just want to talk to those of you today who are facing uncertainty. For some of you, it's uncertainty at work. For some of you, it's uncertainty with your health. For some of you, it's uncertainty with your finances or your marriage or some other area. Whatever area it is, I want to encourage you today, in the midst of this uncertainty, to remember these truths. And just to remember them, I want you to remember when you're standing up in the morning and you have your time with the Lord. I want you to imagine that your feet are planted firmly and securely and grounded in the very gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a pillar in the temple of God. And I want you to take your left hand and I just want you to say, God, I am looking around today for open doors and whatever open doors you give me, I promise to walk straight through. And I want you to take your right hand and I want you to go, God, I want you to give me the strength to endure with patience whatever circumstances come my way today. And there you are, standing firm, grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, secure, looking for the open door, and he has made you sure. Can we stand? I want to show you that gesture together. Some of you are nervous because you're not charismatic, and so these hand gestures make you crazy. Just, we're just going to try it. You don't have to be charismatic. We're just going to do this. There you are. Your feet are grounded on the floor. You are secure and grounded in Jesus Christ. You feel that underneath of you? That will never give way. Now let me see your left hand. This is you looking for the open doors that God has placed in your life. And this is your right hand saying, God, give me the strength to endure whatever comes my way for your sake and for your reputation. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, our hands are open to you. As I look out today, I see pillars in your house today. You have made us secure in you. I thank you, God, for preserving your word and preserving these promises for us today. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are facing uncertainties even right now. I pray, God, that you'd help us not to worry, but to help us to live one day at a time. We may not know the future, but we know you and you hold the future. So help us to trust you. Help us to depend not on our strength, but on you. Help us, God. May we, in the middle of our circumstances, look for those open doors. May we find the strength to endure. And may you, our Lord Jesus Christ, make us secure. For your sake and for your reputation, we pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord Jesus in response to his word today.